All right. Welcome, everyone. Glad to be here. Um, let's just open with a word of prayer. Can we do that? <clears throat> yes? yes? All right. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your goodness. We thank you for worship, Lord, that you have invited us into your presence, Lord, that you're always here waiting. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, uh, for your word that you've given us, uh, that leads us and guides us and directs us. Uh, Father, we just pray uh, that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive um, what you have for us today. Help me communicate uh, what you put on my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're starting out a brand new year. Happy New Year! So I guess it's been a couple of weeks. We're a couple of weeks into it, but this is the first Sunday I get to preach <laughs> in the new year. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to start 2013 a little different. Normally I take uh, uh, quite a bit time in the like late last year and, and, and decide and feel what God is leading me to teach on basically the topics throughout uh, the course of the next six months or year. Um, and, and we base uh, our series on those topics that I feel led by God to, to teach on. Um, but this year, what God put on my heart is to take uh, an extended period of time to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so rather than a one-month series, we're going to have a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't really know how long it's going to take, and that should terrify you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll try not to go too long. I really will. Uh, but um, I'm not going to put a time limit on it. Uh, if, I, if I get bored with it, we'll stop. <laughs> but we're going to just look at the Scripture and let the Scripture guide the topic. Does that make sense? And the Sermon on the Mount touches on so many different topics, so we actually may promote different sections of, of it. And um, if we're having a great time, we might just continue on and go through the whole book of Matthew. I haven't decided that yet either. Um, so and the purpose is to dig deeper into God's Word uh, for two reasons. One, just to learn, of course, what God's Word has for us, uh, because uh, you know the Sermon on the Mount is... is uh, Aaron Mueller, while we were praying before service, called it the Constitution of the Kingdom. You know, I'm like, wow, I'll take that. That's good. Uh, uh, so we want to learn what's in God's Word. But also another aspect of this series is to help you learn how to learn. All right? It's not good enough that I just preach a good message and that you go out and go, boy, that was a great message. Pastor's got a lot of great revelation. Whoever teaches. As a church, that's not our, our primary concern. We want to communicate truth and we want to edify you with a message and, and, and encourage you to stir you up. But more than that, we want to equip you so that you can get out of the Scripture what God wants you to get out of Scripture. You know, We don't want you in any way dependent on Sunday morning for the topic of the week. Uh, you know, I think it, it is the primary teaching uh, mode of the church. <clears throat> but um, So in addition to teaching the content to the series, I'm, I'm also hoping to give clues and hints to, hey, this is how you get stuff out of uh, Scripture, regardless of what portion of Scripture. So if you will, it's, it's, a, it's a class, and I'm going to be putting, more, uh, putting on my, more of my teacher hat than preacher <clears throat> as we go through this series. And, uh, of course, this is started off, right? Uh, we're going to, the Sermon on the Mount is found in what book? Matthew. Very good. So we'll make a point of that. You got a gold star there. Uh, <laughs> and to understand any portion of Scripture, you want to understand the context 
uh, and look at the context of the scripture. And there's immediate context and general context. So the immediate context would be, if you're looking at a verse, you want to look at the verse ahead of it and the verse beneath it, you know, before and after it. Uh, and then maybe maybe even the whole chapter. Gosh, that would be good. Uh, and then maybe, maybe several chapters, if you're in a longer book, or, or the whole book. And so you need to know the context that any particular phrase from Scripture or verse uh, is being used. In order to understand that verse uh, well, understanding the context will help you. Uh, the bigger context, the general context, would be the whole book. It includes, uh, like, who wrote it? Uh, who wrote the book that you're, you're reading this verse? Who was it written to? When was it written? Was there a, a theme? Was there a compelling reason for this book uh, being written? And how does that particular verse that you're quoting fit into the, the general idea of the book? Does this all make sense? You know, because all of these things, uh, we can gain the understanding of a particular verse and how it applies to our lives today by better understanding that verse or that text or that chapter and how it was understood in the day that it was written and then the context and the purpose that it was written. The better we understand that for that day, the better we'll be able to understand and apply it for our day. Okay? And the, the, the thing about the Word of God is that it's alive. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Scripture is written in a way that had specific meaning in the day it was written, but it also has specific meaning for today. So this doesn't limit our ability to apply Scripture in our day. It actually just better informs us to how to apply it in a way that's, that's accurate and in a way that's in line with the, the will of God and the Spirit of God. Does that all make sense? <clears throat> To one person it does. <laughs> All of this information you can get from Bible dictionaries, Bible commentaries. Uh, there's tons of online Bible resources now that's all free. Get a good study Bible. Uh, um, uh, th these resources are so available. We're, you know, we're, we're really spoiled. Say, I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled. You are spoiled. You know? Because we have all this stuff readily available uh, where in many countries they can't even get a Bible and let alone uh, unlimited resources for free. And so it just takes uh, the understanding you know, where to turn to, and turning to it and reading through it uh, is so helpful. Well, the author of Matthew is, guess what? Guess, take a guess, wild guess. Ah! Boom! It actually doesn't say that anywhere in the text, but it's really never been seriously argued that I know of. Uh, that uh, uh, Matthew is the author. Matthew 9, 9 says, Jesus passed from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Um, and so Matthew is considered the author. He was one of the uh, disciples, uh, apostles of Jesus that followed him. <clears throat> and, uh, and Matthew was a Jew. And so as a Jew, he wrote this book as a Jew um, to Jews about a Jew. All right. He was Jewish. He wrote it to people uh, that either were also Jewish or lived in a, 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 a culture familiar with Judaism. And he wrote it about a Jew because Jesus was Jewish. And so the Jewishness of this gospel, in other words, the influence of the Jewish culture 
uh, upon uh, Matthew is greater than, than any of the other Gospels. And that's significant. It's important to know because it helps us understand a lot. If you have that in your mind as you're, as you're reading the, uh, the book, it will help you understand Matthew in a better way. <clears throat> and it may you know, incline you to look up and find out, well, what, what was the Jewish traditions that he might be referring to? Or, or, or why is he emphasizing these particular points? Because he's writing as a Jew to people that were familiar with Judaism uh, but the subject of the book is Jesus. Matthew is the author. Uh, his countrymen are, are, the, are the readers. But the subject is Jesus Christ. That's what the book is written about. Of course, that's what the whole Bible is written about. <clears throat> Matthew is always in all the lists. We have the Bible kind of set, and we all think that the Bible is, uh, is the order of the books in the Bible is pretty well determined, and it has been for her long enough. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the early church, the books were placed in different orders um, before the canon was finally uh, finalized, and that these were the official books in, in the order they placed. But in every list of New Testament documents, Matthew is always put first. It doesn't mean it was written first, uh, but it was acknowledged at, uh, to be placed first among all of them. It may have been written first, but there is debate about that. It doesn't really matter if it was written before Mark, Luke, and John. Um, let me read a quote from a, a commentary that I'm using uh, by a man named France, R.T. France. It's a Tyndall con commentary on Matthew. It says, The early church were, were conscience, conscious, uh, in a way few Christians are today, that their faith had its roots in Judaism. The issue of relation between the Christian church and Jews remained a vital one, both for Christians' self-understanding so that they could understand what this Christian faith was about, and for their presentation of Christ to the non-Christian world. And it is Matthew's gospel, which more fully than the others, provides a Christian perspective on this issue. In its constant reference to the Old Testament, its strong Jewish flavoring, its explicit discussions of the conflict between Jewish and the Jewish authorities, it forms a fitting bridge between Old and New Testament. A constant reminder to Christians of the rock from which they are hewn. And so Matthew, better than all the other Gospels, is placed in a way because it is that bridge that takes you from the Old Testament. You know, it works great in the printed book, but it also worked great for people living in that day. It explained how the one bridged to the other how the, the Old Covenant bridged to the New Covenant, and it's arranged in a way that makes that really easy. Matthew was written probably around 80, 80, 80, 80, <clears throat> although that's unknown. It could have been as early as in the 60s. I actually think it probably was uh, written as early as in the 60s or as late as in the 90s uh, AD. <clears throat> and so... A um, couple of things about that. What does that mean, 80 to uh, 60 to 90 A.D.? Well, of course, Jesus rose uh, uh, from the dead. The resurrection was around 30, 33 A.D. And so this would have been, the soonest would have been 30 years after the resurrection, and it could have been six, up to 60 years. Uh, during that period, let's say that's when it was published, Okay because that doesn't necessarily mean that was the first time it was written. Um, the tradition in Jewish 
the, the way Jewish people conducted education was through memorization, all right? Uh, which, again, there's a lot of things about our culture that's different from their culture. Who would have guessed that 2,000 years would change something? <laughs> Heck, I can hardly relate to today because I grew up in the 60s, all right? <laughs> just, you know, 50 years has changed everything. Think how much has changed in 2,000 years. Um, so <clears throat> the Jewish culture uh, tradition of learning, if you studied under a rabbi, you actually rec- you recited verbatim everything they said. And, and, and you were a good student when you could copy their intonation. So not only could you say the words, but you could say them in the same way. You would emphasize the same points. And so you said them so accurately, it sounded just like Jesus. All right? And so his disciples... They were his disciples. They lived with him. They ate with him. They heard every sermon he wrote, he spoke, and they would repeat the same things over and over again. They would test each other, and they would try to best each other. That was just the culture. Uh, and, and they lived with him, and they got his teachings correct. And then there's no doubt many of this portions, portions have fragments of it have been found, uh, archaeological fragments of it, and it could have been written down or portions have been written down, but it was published as a whole sometime between there. <clears throat> Another con- thing to keep in mind is that everything that you read in the book of Acts and the story of the church growing, by the time this is published, that's all done. Have you ever thought of that? And a lot of people read Acts, thinks it takes place over the course of a couple of weeks. <laughs> it takes course over decades, right? Between some of those chapters, there may be 10 to 14 years, you know? But when you read it, it doesn't say that. Gosh, don't you wish they did? You know, that's what a study Bible is for, you know? <laughs> so you can understand the, the, the flow and the timing of it. It seems like, man, everything's happening. Boom, 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 boom. When you read through it, but it's actually paced, and there's years between some of these events. Um, and so <clears throat> uh, Matthew was written, uh, uh, actually, when Matthew was written, and that would mean that there's already many, many churches of many different uh, sizes. And in fact, there's mega churches. There were mega churches in the first century. All right? Well, how can you say that, Kevin? Because the first day, how many people got saved? 3,000 people. And then. Uh, Okay, that would qualify even today as a megachurch. And the population of the world then was a fraction of what it is today, right? So all of a sudden, the church starts out with 3,000 members, and then it says, and God added to them daily. daily. All right? So thousands of people were getting saved. Boom! If you want a church like the New Testament church, you have to start with a megachurch. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> I read, for those of you who may not understand what I'm joking about, is that there's a, there's a big movement that, you know, the early church was all just little teeny churches hiding. And that's not, it's just not true. It's just not biblical. There were churches that met in houses, and there were medium-sized churches. In fact, many synagogues converted. And synagogues were uh, uh, um, um, people that lived too far from the temple uh, to gather Jews would gather together in what's called a synagogue, and they would meet in every city that had a certain number of Jews would have a synagogue uh, to go in and to do the uh, Sabbath services and to learn about uh, the teachings of the Torah <clears throat> and the pass down the traditions. Uh, and, um, and that's where Paul would go and preach. And the other apostles would, would go, and early Christians would go there first and preach the gospel. And many of them would get converted. And some of them would, would try to kill them. <laughs> and a group of them would go out and, and, and 
and, and, and uh, actually start a Christian church. And so there were churches of hundreds. Uh, there were churches of thousands. And then wherever the gospel were preached, there were churches that may have been just 10 or 20 people meeting in somebody's house. Gosh, it just looks like the church today, doesn't it? That's because it is. It's the same thing. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and so the, the Matthew was written uh, for use in these churches, struggling with the awareness that their roots were in Jude- Judaism, but they were confronted by some, con- some issues, such as the difference between the Old Testament practices and, and ordinances and the teachings of Jesus. How do we really implement them in our day? Uh, the rejection and the persecution of Christians by the Jewish authorities. They knew that it was Jewish. Many of them were Jewish. And, uh, how do they deal with the fact that the Jewish leadership basically has issued death sentences for people that convert to Christianity? And, and how, do you, how do you reconcile that? And also they had to deal with this other phenomenon, which was the harvest of the Gentiles. Because thousands and thousands of Gentiles, they would preach and they would just flock in. And so how do we communicate? And so Matthew is written to, to, to tell the story and to get the story right. Um, <clears throat> Matthew is the most quoted gospel of all the, uh, from all the early church writings of any of the other gospels. It's quoted the most. Uh, it was a pro- one of the primary uh, documents used as a textbook of the early church, all right, to tell the story and to continue the story. Uh, much of uh, Matthew, 45% of it, is actually found in Mark, and that's where a lot of scholars think that Mark Mark's book was the first one written, and the other ones used it as a source document. And that may have been, it may have been Matthew was written first. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter, because you know why? Because they were all friends. They all knew each other. And they experienced the same experience together, and so they shared notes. It was okay. They probably had a Google Doc. No. (laughs) They wrote it down on scrolls. You know, they could all edit it on like, yeah, it's so. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so like all the Gospels uh, and the Bible, um, Matthew is not a chronological biography of Jesus' life. In other words, it's not presented in chronological order. Uh, each Gospel arranges the order of events and teachings in Christ's life to communicate a particular emphasis or perspective. And that was the right way to write something in that day, all right? In other words, the the rules of proper composition for our day are different. We use a different language, let alone a different culture. And so the fact that each gospel kind of rearranges the stories and puts events in a different order doesn't make it less true. It makes it actually a better uh, uh, document, and they would have received a higher grade from their professor because they were doing it in the proper way. They were presenting the events in Jesus' life in a way that communicated uh, best the emphasis that, that they were trying to emphasize. Of course, they felt led by God to emphasize, and obviously were since it made it into the scriptures. <laughs> All right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, uh, I, like, I love this quote. In accepting that God intended the church to have four gospels, not just one, Christians have also recognized that each has something different to say about Jesus. It's only after we have listened to each in its individuality that we can hope to gain the full richness which comes from the stereoscopic vision 
of Jesus as seen through four different pairs of eyes. And so the four Gospels, the four testimonies, the four uh, evangelists, you know, all four, the four winds of the earth, we get we have fourfold witness of the life of Jesus on purpose because each one emphasizes different things. So what's the emphasis of Matthew? I'm going to zip through this pretty quick. Uh, the classic understanding of Matthew uh, is that it's the gospel that represents Jesus as king. <clears throat> Jesus is king. He's the king. He's the long-awaited king. You know, if you attended the class yesterday on the story of the Bible, um, it, with Mark and Graham did a phenomenal job taking you through the whole Old Testament in, in, in a three-hour class. I could not do that in three years, all <laughs> right, um, and uh, the end was after the Babylonian captivity, the, uh, the people of Israel were freed, and they moved back to uh, Israel to, to live, and they even rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the wall, and, and they reestablished their culture, but there was one thing missing, that's how they ended the class, I loved how they ended the class, they didn't know what I was going to be teaching on today, I did, they said the, the one thing that was missing was the king, and so they lived there for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, waiting for the, the king to come. Uh, um, and then Matthew starts out presenting Jesus as king. Mark presents him as servant. Luke presents him as the son of man, uh, his, his man, his humanity. And John presents him as the son of God, emphasizing his divinity. But here in, in Matthew, verse 2, 2, right from the beginning, um, <clears throat> it's the story of uh, after Jesus' birth, the wise men come uh, to uh, give gifts. And we're familiar with the, that part of the Christmas story. We just read it a few weeks ago. And the wise men come in and say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. <clears throat> Why did Matthew include that in his story? But you know, it's not found in any of the other gospel accounts. Why? Because Matthew's intent was to emphasize the king, kingly aspect of Jesus Christ. And here we see uh, wise men coming from the east and even you know, Gentiles coming from the east and acknowledging God has brought a king, the long-awaited king has now come to Israel, has now come to Jerusalem that has been waiting so long. And then Matthew begins, <clears throat> the, the whole first part of Matthew, chapter 1, is a genealogy. Um, how many love genealogies? No, well, well, a couple of hands reluctantly came up. <laughs> uh, um, and he list, goes through a list uh, of uh, the genealogy. I have to say, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible. How many are doing the Bible in 90 days? Come on, a couple of you, three, four? All right, come on. The rest of you chickens. <laughs> you can do it. It's not hard. Um, but I, I'm reading through, I was just going to throw this in. Uh, you know, in the part of the tabernacle where it goes through all the details, I got a major revelation. You're going to love this. You know, it's just every detail, every bolt, every connector, every everything. And then they repeat it, you know, over and over again. I'm just reading. I'm like, I got to go. Okay, okay, okay. And I realized, and this is a revelation, all the other places in the Bible where I wished God would go into greater detail, now I'm good. Because <laughs> right. he went into detail, and I know how detail-oriented he can be. I'm like, all right, if the I went into detail about everything, we'd have to have a semi-truck to carry it around. <laughs> all right? <laughs> so that's, that one's for free. 
Matthew comes in with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this is interesting, a couple of points here. Uh, you may not know this, but Genesis is actually broken up. And you can divide the book in sections, and each section starts out with, the ge- this is the genealogy of Adam. This is the genealogy of each different person. And, and that actually is a well-known division of the book of Genesis. All right, it st- each, each book in the book of Genesis is actually connected and differentiated. And everybody, the Jewish people, every scholar, New Testament scholar knows this, or a Bible scholar knows this today. Uh, and Matthew starts it out that way. And he does that on purpose. He does it on purpose because every Jew who reads that is going to know, wow, Matthew's writing this as though it were the next genealogy, picking up right from where the Old Testament left off. He did that intentionally. You know, it'd be a huge impact to them, <clears throat> and and not something that he was shy about. He's proclaiming it, and then and then it traces Jesus's genealogy back to uh, David as king. Uh, it shows that he is the rightful heir of the throne of David, that uh, the, the people of Israel had been waiting many, many centuries for the rightful heir of the king of David to sit on the throne. Here Jesus is uh, the rightful heir of the, uh, he's the son of David, and he's the seed of Abraham. It goes back to the promise of Abraham. And so this genealogy <clears throat> shows and proves the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to kingship. All right? And it proves the legitimacy of Jesus' claim as being a descendant of Abraham. And these, this is some of the most important things on the mind of a Jewish reader. To us, we don't care. We read the genealogies, yeah, 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 I can't pronounce half the name, who cares? All right? But to them, man, that's so important. Everybody knew their genealogy. Everybody, everything in the Jewish culture depended on genealogy. All right? Until Jesus comes. And let me tell you, there's a reason why there are no more genealogies in Scripture. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the need for genealogy. He fulfilled the need for tracing the lineage uh, from Abraham because he is the seed, singular, of Abraham that was promised to fulfill all that God promised in the Old Testament. All right? Aren't you glad we're done with genealogies? Amen. (laughs) We are now adopted into God's family through faith, through Christ. So Jesus is king. Jesus is the fulfillment. All right, and the next emphasis, I'm only going to touch on a few of the emphases, emphases, emphases. <laughs> I'm only going to touch on a few of the things that Matthew emphasizes. <laughs> Jesus is king is what everybody's got to know. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus, say fulfillment. Fulfillment, yeah. It, the, I'm a quote from uh, the author of the uh, uh, commentary. It says, The essential key to all Matthew's theology is that in Jesus, all God's purposes have come to fulfillment. Right? All the way through the book, is, this is, was to fulfill. Uh, this was to fulfill. He pounds the point, pounds the point. And again, a quote from the commentator. It says, Put simply, we are talking here about fulfillment not only of Old Testament predictions, but of Old Testament history and religion, including events and institutions, which in themselves carried no explicit reference to the future. Right? Put simply, we're talking about the fulfillment not only of the Old Testament predictions, 
but of Old Testament history, religion, including events and institutions, which in themselves carried no explicit reference to the future. And <clears throat> I, did, I never really thought this until I read this. That, oh, a lot of people probably think Jesus is a fulfillment means that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. And that's true. But that's not really what we're talking about here. He's not just fulfilling the things that were prophesied about the Messiah. And there's a whole list. You can buy books that say these are all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. When you say Jesus is a fulfillment, it's much, much bigger than that. All right? He is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament points to. Every aspect of their culture, of their religion, of the law, everything is fulfilled. It all led up to Jesus Christ. The purpose, the existence of the nation of Israel was to produce the Messiah. Okay, And the Messiah is king of the whole earth forever. Right, his kingdom shall never fail. And so, <clears throat> some of these things uh, was asked. Well, what's an example of something in the Old Testament that wasn't actually in and of itself predictive? There's nothing in the Old Testament that says the ark predicts something. All right, we'll just take the ark of the covenant. You know where they put the the box that they they built to put the law and the staff and the manna, uh -huh. <clears throat> the one that Indiana Jones found in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so <clears throat> there's not, nothing in the, in the Old Testament that says that this predicts something but if you look at it, it was, it's made of wood alright and the wood is, is, is natural it's something that's organic it grows and it dies right? Uh, and it speaks of humanity right? but it's covered in gold and gold is, the, uh, imbol, uh, is a symbol an image of divi divinity uh, the nature of God. So you have this wood box that's completely covered in gold. And, what, and it's a perfect picture of Jesus Christ, that he is a human, you know, and, it's, and he's fully divine. And in him is where God and man connect. In the Old Testament, it was in the ark, God would meet with man at the mercy seat on the top of the ark. That's, that was the, the point of intersection between mankind and God was there. And there's this box that represents the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. So here's this one thing out of many things that you can pick that says Jesus fulfills all of that. Does that make sense? <clears throat> pretty cool? That's pretty cool. <laughs> so when you read the Old Testament, you have to say, how does this point to Jesus Christ? In what way does this point to Jesus um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, of course. Um, Simon Peter, this is, uh, Jesus was with his disciples. This is found in Matthew 16, verse 16. Um, uh, and Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think I am? Uh, and uh, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered, right on, you got it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, Simon, at that point, because it wasn't ready to be revealed, uh, Peter got it. He got the revelation. But just learning that information from Scripture is not enough, all right? The purpose of that that was written um, and, the, and the purpose of understanding this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah 
is that you get that revelation. All right? Each of us needs to have the same revelation that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is my Messiah. And so Matthew is written to communicate those points. Uh, and the order of the story is written to, to lead you to that conclusion, the same conclusion that Peter came to, that he is, this, he is the one. He's the one uh, uh, <clears throat> that we've been waiting for, not only the nation of Israel, but we as individuals. And so the question is, have you had that personal revelation of Jesus? You know, have you had it? And if you haven't, I encourage you to seek it out, to study it out. If you only have information, well, they keep saying he is, but if you haven't gotten the revelation, it's waiting there for you. Find it, dig for it. And he's the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5, 17, this is actually part of the sermon, but we're just going to kind of take a preview of it. Uh, sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> five seventeen says, "Do not think." Jesus said, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Um, okay. The Jews sought righteousness through the law. All right, and so when Jesus said. It talks about the law, and, and the way that Matthew uh, uh, deals with the issue of the law is very important because they, they thought it was through keeping of the law that you, were, you, got, you found righteousness or right standing with God. And Jesus comes and says, I haven't come to abolish it. I've actually come to fulfill it. All right? Not replace it, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law. <clears throat> and the gospel teaches us this. The gospel, uh, Jesus' message in the whole New Testament, uh, basically start at that, that statement or that idea and extrapolate from it so that we can understand what that means. All right? The rest of the whole New Testament is talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Have you ever thought about it that way? You should. <laughs> I encourage you to. Paul explains this idea in Romans chapter 10, 1 through 4. Uh, Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And here Israel is referring to the natural descendants, the ethnic people of Jews. Is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ, this is the, this is the, this is the main line here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus was saying, that he came to fulfill the law, to complete it. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. Previously, the law was a means uh, to right relationship with God. But now it is Christ who is the means. The law is no longer the means. Now the law is actually uh, fulfilled as it were, was in Christ's life. It's fulfilled in us individually when we are in Christ. Only Jesus kept the law. He was the only one who never sinned, all right? And so the only way that we can live sinless is when we're in Him. Does that make sense? All right? So it's not getting rid of the law. 
This is, this is really, some people make it, make it like, oh, this is theology stuff, and it's hard to understand. It's not really hard to understand at all. He doesn't get rid of the law, like all that stuff in the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. No! All of it matters extremely importantly matters, because all of it is pointing to Christ and is the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and we can live the law as it is truly meant to be lived when we are in Christ. Because we're not living it, he's living it. It's not our life, but it's his life. Right? Because we're, we're dead, but our life is now in Christ, hidden in God, with Christ, hidden with Christ, in God. All right? <clears throat> uh, uh, and then Paul says, uh, to those who believe, and he goes on, nine uh, chapter 10, 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you will be made whole. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the idea here is uh, Paul, I refer to those verses in Romans as an explanation or uh, to give us an understanding of how Christ fulfills the law and that's made real in your life, in my life, simply by believing. All right, by accepting. Accepting what? Accepting that Jesus is the King. That Matthew proclaims He is. That He is the Messiah. Okay? That is communicated clearly. That He is the fulfillment of all things in the old. That Every promise that was promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, you get in on every promise, no longer based on how, how well you keep all of the regulations, no longer based on who was your father and who was his father and who was his father and, and some genealogy or ethnic ethnicity, no longer based on any of that but based on whether you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that he's Lord of your life, that he's your king, that he's your Messiah, he's your fulfillment, he's the fulfillment, he's the fulfillment of the law. And when you enter into relationship with, that, with him through faith, all of the things that Matthew communicates about Jesus Christ, you actually step into. Is that good news? That's good news. That's the gospel. That's what uh, Matthew has. And if you've never accepted that, if you've never prayed that, done that, I encourage you not to leave today to, 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 to do that in your heart. Or if you did it and you haven't been living it, I encourage you to, to, to reevaluate and reaffirm your faith and, and cause him to be uh, uh, who he is. Accept him as Lord and Savior. Um, uh, uh, next time I talk, we're going to get more uh, closely into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually going to look at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to start taking it verse by verse. But right now, Dan has some announcements. Thank you. I am so looking forward to this series. Oh, man. Thank you for...